Prestige heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to welcome to the podcast Eric Alterman. Eric is the CUNY Distinguished Professor of English and Journalism at Brooklyn College, where my grandparents and parents went. He's a writer for the Nation and the American Prospect, and he has a PhD in history for, uh, from Stanford. And we invited him on the podcast to talk about his new book, "We Are Not One." A History of America's Fight Over Israel. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so why don't we start with you, actually, because I think um, your generational trajectory is pretty interesting in its relationship with Israel. So if you wouldn't mind, could you situate yourself and how uh, how has your relationship to the state of Israel changed over time or in the course of your life? Well, I'm going to answer your question, but I don't really like it. Good. Because, that means I'm doing my job. Because it was important to me to write this book as a historian rather than as me. And and that's um, and I don't really feel like I entered the book. There are a lot of places in the book where I could have said, oh, this reminds me of something my Zadie said. Um, and I avoided all that. But I'll answer your question. But before I answer your question, can I just say we're, we're taping this on the day that of the death of my friend and mentor, Victor Navasky who um, meant a great deal to me for my whole life, and I just want to recognize that fact. May his memory be a blessing. Yes, it already is. Okay, now I have to stop thinking about that because I, I tear up. All right, so um, I tell this story. Uh, uh, I told it to an interviewer recently, and he used it as his lead, which is that when I was in high school, I did this nerdy thing called presidential classroom, where a bunch of high school students go to Washington and are briefed by people. And we went to this uh, temple and the rabbi spoke about Israel. And then some kid from the South quite innocently says, I don't understand if you Jews can have a state, why can't the Palestinians also have a state just like you do? And I looked at the guy and I said, how dare you? What an outrageous idea. You don't know anything. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly what I said, but that's how I felt. And um, as I was raised in suburban New York of a generation, I was born in 1960, and I was raised, uh, and I think this was quite common, and it, and it basically worked in my generation, which is that because of the Holocaust, you have to defend Israel, period. And, and that's really the way the world is. The world is out to get the Jews, and the only way we can be safe is if we have this strong country that will defend Jews and will provide a refuge when we need it. And um, and there's really not much content to the Jewish education I got in Hebrew school, where I was bar mitzvah, other than that. And uh, yeah, I'm a liberal. I'm a, I'd say I'm a left liberal. And um, as I grew up, I lived with this contradiction of Israel being uh, less and less liberal, both in the left liberal sense and also in the academic sense that we use it in. Um, and I lived with that tension and I was, I considered myself a liberal Zionist as did to most of my friends. And I would say I entered writing this book as a liberal Zionist. Now, if I could go back a bit, I actually started this book 40 years ago, literally when I did my honors thesis at Cornell um, with Walter Lefebvre. And I wrote a thesis on the origins of Jewish neoconservatism. My feeling back then was, I can still, I still kind of feel this way, is that I had been born to be a Jewish intellectual, like of the partisan review uh, genre. And this tradition, my career, my future had been hijacked by these neoconservatives who were all enraged then and had all the money and all the publications. And, and I wanted to get to the bottom of this as a historian, as an as a amateur historian. So I wrote that I wrote that honor thesis, and then ten years later, I um, I thought I was going to do my dissertation at Stanford on the uh, creation of the state of Israel and its effect on American liberal intellectuals, and I spent a year researching that. I didn't do it. I did something else. I did what became my book, When Presidents Lie, 
And the reason I switched is because, as you both know, the purpose of a dissertation is merely to show you know everything there is to know about a topic. And that's just not possible with Jews. They write too damn much. And I, it, I never could have felt that way. So, any, But anyway, for 40 years, I've cared deeply about this topic. I felt a, a sort of schism in my heart and mind between the idea of Israel and the fact of Israel and my own beliefs and my politics. Um, so liberal Zionism existed for quite a while there, and we had our heroes. My heroes were mostly literary heroes like Amos Oz and Alphabet Yeshua, David Grossman, and, and some politicians. But two things happened, I guess, while I was writing this book, maybe a little earlier, but definitely while I was writing it, um, I signed a contract in 2015. The first was that the idea that there could be two states and the Israelis could live in, Palestine, in peace with the Palestinians has basically disappeared um, in large measure because of Israeli expansion into the West Bank. And, uh, and so liberal Zionism is, is, is a fantasy. There's nothing liberal about Zionism anymore. Uh, and just a quick, quick clarifying question. You would say that that wasn't yet true in 2015? No, I'm saying I discovered this. And, uh, Got it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Around then. I'm not actually dating exactly when it was. But I did learn, actually, the second part of this might clarify this. In researching the book, I'd always had the idea. There was a historian, an Israeli historian I admired enormously, named um, Zev Sternhall. And um, he was a great man. And, and he, he used to say, we had a good little country here before the occupation. And I felt that way too. But in researching the book, I found that the country was very problematic before the occupation. There were two things that really bothered me about pre-1967 Israel. One was that I learned, and I don't know how I missed this, but I guess most people don't know this either, that until 1966, the Palestinians inside Israel lived under martial law. Um, they couldn't go, they couldn't visit their relatives in the town next door without the permission of the police and that it's not I mean, the idea that the Israelis Israeli Jews are reaching out to Israeli Palestinians to live in peace that, that had no basis in reality the second thing is that okay there's always been a lot of uh, argument over how many Palestinians left because they were forced out and how many chose to leave uh, it seems to me we'll never know the answer to this but the vast majority I think were forced out uh, in the Nakba but um, in 1950, the Israelis passed a law that said that all the property belonging to the people who had left the country was now the property of the state. And I, I don't see how in the world that you can justify that morally. Um, so, uh, so I think there was a, you know, the, the original Israel, which forced out hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and took no responsibility for them at all, said they're just not our problem. They're the problem of the Arab world and the rest of the world, but not our problem. I kind of, I get it. In a psychological sense, I get it, given the Holocaust and given Jewish history. But it, it's certainly not the way that the conversation in the United States was ever set up. That's a really good introduction, and I think it might make sense now to turn to the actual book and w what you approached it um, as a historian. So how would you characterize the American response to the foundation of Israel in the late 1940s and 1950s? What, what were people thinking about it? Uh, what was this sort of post-Holocaust Jewry doing with it? Of course, this is a moment when a lot of American Jews don't talk, publicly talk about the Holocaust necessarily. There's this new state of Israel. How would you characterize that relationship in the first decade? or so of its existence. It's really interesting. And again, this is something that people generally don't know, I don't think, which is that, okay, so when people discovered the Holocaust, at the same time, they just, the Zionist movement became something that looked strong enough to actually create a country, they were, they were faced with a, a choice that they couldn't face, which was, to try and either save European Jews from Hitler or to try and build a Jewish commonwealth. No one was talking about statehood in those days, in Palestine. And to be fair, 
Number one, it was very hard to believe what was happening to European Jews. Number two, there, it was very hard to figure out what could be done about it. The United States was not, no country was going to allow Jews in. No country would take them. And we had very little uh, impact over Hitler. And, and, and American Jews, like President Roosevelt, were terrified that the war effort would be seen as a war for Jews. So people basically kept quiet. And then you have this wonderful, thrilling example of the first Jewish Commonwealth in 2000 years and these big, strong Jews who were making the desert bloom and had big muscles and were handsome, like later, like Paul Newman in Exodus. And, and that was thrilling. And one was shameful and sad and pathetic and a shame for, for American Jews. And the other one was thrilling and exciting. And, and it seemed like God was back in the picture for Jews. So, so there's nothing more exciting to American Jews than the idea of helping Palestine. The other thing that's really important here, I guess, to point out is that most American Jews were really anti-Zionist for a very long time when the movement was founded in the 1890s. And it wasn't until Louis Brandeis came up with the idea that, well, Zionism doesn't really, it's not really for American Jews, it's for other Jews. We don't need it. We have a, we have a home here. Our home, is, our Zion is America. But other Jews need it, and therefore you can support it. So once Zionism became something for other Jews, it, it was no longer a problem for American Jews to support it. It didn't necessarily impinge on their uh, hopes to appear as patriotic as any other people. Anyway, so when the state of Israel became a possibility, you had, in my opinion, uh, historians shouldn't say things like this, but in my, as far as I can tell, the largest lobbying campaign in all of history on behalf of the state. And it wasn't just Jews, but it was, it was, it was certainly run by Jews. You had, uh, you had a lot of, you had more than one town in America sending more postcards to the White House and to Congress than they had people in those towns. You had enormous amounts of money raised and, and it was, it was very easy to do. It was thrilling. And then weirdly, this is the part that most people don't know. Once the state was established, Americans just kind of forgot about it. Eric, I just ask a quick question about that fundraising campaign. Did it cross political lines? Do you have Jewish labor and Jewish business sort of uniting around this cause? Or does is there a particular um, part of the Jewish community that is behind it in a more serious way? Well, you know, that was the genius of the Zionists. And I, it's something in my head, I don't think I did much of this in the book, that I compared to the Palestinians. The Zionists were at cross purposes over everything but they managed to unite on behalf of their cause. So the religious Zionists hated the labor Zionists who hated the communist Zionists, who hated the socialist Zionists, who hated the capitalist Zionists, but they were able, number one, to kind of reach a sort of synthetic agreement on how to proceed, and number two, to work together. And the Palestinians aren't able to do that. Not that they necessarily would have the power and influence that the Zionists had, but, but that the genius of Zionism was their ability to argue and yet still work together. How does this play into the early Cold War, or does it not really play into the early Cold War? Very interestingly, the conservatives were, the State Department and Republican conservatives were anti-Israel. The State Department was largely worried about access to oil and strategic role of the, um, of these countries and upsetting you know, not only the access to natural resources, but also just fighting the Cold War everywhere. The Republicans were afraid that uh, Israel was going to be a communist country, that the people coming from Europe were going to be communists, and it was going to create a threat to the United States in that form. Uh, and that's another reason they argued against allowing any refugees into the United States, because they assumed that they were communists. Um, the other people who opposed it were uh, the people who owned the New York Times and uh, other Jews, as I said, Reformed Jewry, which was the main form of Jewry before the Eastern European immigration of the 1880s, that began in the 1880s, they were dead set against um, Zionism. And they, they had a pretty strong, uh, uh, they didn't disappear. Um, so the New York Times aligned itself with the extreme opponents of Zionism with a group called the American Council on Judaism, 
which the State Department also had a thing for. And these, these were the main basis of taking the American Council for Judaism seriously at all. Otherwise, the much more important group, the um, American Jewish Committee, which was set up in 1906 by German Jews as a kind of Supreme Court of Judaism and diplomatic core of Judaism at the same time, and also to help, quote-unquote, civilize the Eastern European Jews so they didn't mess up how nice things were for Jews in this country. Um, they were non-Zionist. So they were not anti-Zionist. They were non-Zionist. And they tried, and, and the reason was, in both cases, that these old German Jews, the Reformed Jews who came here in the mid-19th century, they didn't think Jews were a people. They thought Jews were a religion. Jewishness was just a religion, and you could be, they were just as American as a Christian. They, they had no connection to the other Jews in the rest of the world. So they maintained this position. They got politically defeated massively by the Zionists in the 1940s, but because of who they were in society, they were able to maintain their position. And weirdly, they, they, the leader of the American Jewish Committee, Judge Proskauer, was this was the person who sort of negotiated on behalf of American Jews with the Prime Minister of Israel to to divide, you know, what belonged to Caesar and what belonged to God, and uh, and there was a lot of contention over that. Now, there's a lot of argument among historians. I'm sorry to go on so long. There's a lot of argument among historians about to what degree was were Israel and the Holocaust important to American Jews before 1967. And, you, and depending on which evidence you use, you can make your case. I think the way to look at it is that, particularly with regard to Israel, it was important on a local level. It was important to, in, in sometimes in the life of the synagogue, certainly for the purpose of parades and collecting, instead of UNICEF, you collected for JNF. I did that on Halloween to plant trees and so forth. And, Israel would be covered like 14 times in trees, right? If all of that money was right. was sent to trees. I, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of money on trees myself. <laughs> um, but the national Jewish organizations were not at all interested in Israel. In the American Jewish Committee uh, yearbook of 1966, they get to Israel on page 37. In, in Nathan Glazer's uh, quite well-respected uh, book American Judaism, 1957, there's like no mention of Israel at all. In fact, he mentions how weird it is that there's so little interest in Israel. So Israel was kind of like a Disneyland that American Jews didn't visit, but they imagined. So so American Jewish teens didn't go there? That wasn't yet a thing? No, I was going to ask that. Not okay. At all. Not at all. And in fact, there's, uh, you know, Israel, the Israelis expected American Jews to move to Israel, like so many other Jews. In other countries did, and it was just no interest in that. And there's one, I quote one Israeli diplomat saying, uh, bringing up Aliyah, which is the Hebrew word for uh, moving to Israel, is like asking about a bride's virginity. Don't do it. It's bad, it's bad manners. So uh, the American Jewish community was quite unique in that respect. So obviously, 67 is a radicalizing moment. But before we get there, did, did the Eichmann trial and sort of the uh, emergence of the Holocaust as a major feature of American Jewish, of the American Jewish imagination have an effect on American Jews' relationship to Israel? Or is it really 67 and then 73? Much, much more important than the Eichmann trial is something else that happened the same year. Do you know what I'm thinking of? Uh, no. <laughs> the book and movie Exodus. Oh, yes, 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 of course. So Leon Uris is and Paul Newman. Okay. I'm writing another book about Jews, and I have hundreds of pages on, the, on Hannah Arendt and the Eichmann trial, but there's like no place for it in this book because it's just not important. American, American intellectuals cared a lot about it, you know, but no, it, I don't see any important, particular importance to it for American Jews. Again, they, they were... They weren't really ready to talk about the Holocaust except privately at home, and it usually occurred between grandparents and grandchildren rather than parents and children. But uh, the movie Exodus is fascinating because um, it, 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 Leon Uris said to people, I'm going to write another chapter of the Bible, and he wrote this crappy book that actually kind of functioned like another chapter of the Bible. Again, when I was growing up and I had sleepovers at my friend's house, you could not go to a single 
Jewish home without seeing that blue and white book on their shelves. My mom gave it to me when I was like nine. I gave her. I gave her a report. I read it when I was ten, in fifth grade. I read it and I gave such a good report on it that they called me back in on parents' night to give it to the parents to give the same report to the parents. Um. So so Exodus and then the movie starring Paul Newman. Uh, it had it had a again the, the Israelis when they saw this movie although they. They sort of got it from the beginning, and they were incredibly indulgent, both of Leon Uris and of Otto Brebinger. They, they gave him 40,000 extras for the uh, scene where they declared the state of Israel. They shut down the port of Haifa, the entire port of Haifa, which I think was the biggest port in Israel. Um, and uh, they said, we don't, need a, a public, we don't need a public relations office anymore. This book is all we're ever going to need. Um, and yet, so it created this image in the is in the American mind, I, th- I would say in a in a Gentiles and Jews, of this heroic Israel and these dirty, smelly, evil Arabs who, in the movie, were actually allied with Nazis. Um, but that only that that again lay dormant politically until sixty seven. But it combined with sixty seven, and again with the. The Holocaust, again, became important in 67. And this is all part of the transformation of the American identity um, to what uh, my friend, Professor Shal Magid, calls the Zionization of American Jewry. My old professor, Shal Magid at JTS. Uh, I really liked him. I took intro to Jewish philosophy with him. <laughs> He's a good dude. Uh, Derek, I know you had a question. Yeah, Eric, I think, you know, another piece of this uh, is certainly the, the relationship between uh, Zionism and the Christian right. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We can talk about sort of the rise of the, the Republican Christian right in the 80s, you know, uh, in a bit. But you do talk about this in the book, and uh, there's a fascinating little anecdote about John Hagee, which is just amazing, kind of the ways that he speaks to different audiences about the same issue. Uh, but the roots of this uh, go back fairly far, the connection between uh, Zionism and, and Christianity in the United States. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that uh, as another piece of this, this story. Yeah, sure. Well, um, when, when Zionism was founded in 1896 or 7 um, by Theodore its only supporters in the United States were were Christians, and uh, uh, the leader of this was a man. I believe his name is Derby, who is credited with creating what's called premillennial dispensationalism, which is the doctrine of Christian thought based on the Book of Revelations, which requires Jews to be ingathered into Zion so that the rapture can take place and those Jews who are in gathered in Zion will go to hell with all the other people who are not saved and Christians will go to heaven and Jesus will return. And, um, and so Jews were an instrument of this form of Christianity, which I, I, seems to be pretty minor for a long time, but beginning in the 1970s and 1980s, became enormously popular in, in conjunction with the Christian coalition and the Reagan administration, etc. And um, to me, again, I was shocked at what I consider, you're not supposed to criticize people's religion, but the things that these preachers say to me are just insane. They're just crazy. Like, I forget if it's Hagee. I think it's Hagee. So there's just no question that the head of the European Union is Satan. And and uh, and they're they're like rooting for a war, for is they they want Israel or the United States to attack Iran because they think the Russians will then join in and then we'll have that will lead to Armageddon and according to Jerry Falwell, oh what a glorious day that will be, um, and uh, and they don't like Jews. I mean they they like they like they like the idea of the Jews because of the role that they play, but they have very bad opinion, very low opinion of Jews now. There's another book out that came out a little before mine by Walter Russell Mead, someone who's one of the few conservatives I've ever been able to read without my heart beating too fast. I, I actually have known him for 40 years. I, I helped get him one of his very first jobs, literally 40 years ago, at the, at the World Policy Institute. We were both fellows there, uh, back when Walter was a liberal. 
And, and he's written this book, which is completely at odds to mine, but has gotten wonderful reviews everywhere I've seen, where he argues that Jews don't really, American Jews don't really matter. No reason to discuss APAC. There's no media discourse of any importance about Israel. It's just that American Christians love Israel, and that's why the United States supports Israel, and that's all you really need to know. And uh, he, gives an, he gives an enormously sympathetic discussion of pre-millennial, pre-millennial dispensationalism that has driven evangelical Christianity and Christian conservatism and is the reason that the Republican Party is so deeply invested in uh, Israel, particularly the right-wing version of Israel. And, and, I, and I read the book, and I, I kept I, – I don't, I don't understand the argument except for – except to say that if you're, looking to, if you're looking for a sympathetic view, I wouldn't say I give a sympathetic – I try to be sympathetic. I try to be sympathetic to everyone in the book. But if you're looking for a sympathetic rendition of right-wing Christian Zionism, you'll find it in Walter's book. What he doesn't do is explain – how that view translates into U.S. foreign policy without any role for APEC or uh, pro-Israel lobby or Israel's role in the media, et cetera, or the neoconservatives, et cetera. But um, the, the, the way, the, the, the centrality, I guess to answer your question, I could have said this earlier, the centrality of Israel to evangelical Christianity is really something that is not well understood in our politics. When when Jerry Falwell founded the um, Moral Majority, one of their fundamental planks was support for Israel. And, and they, they announced, if, if you want to be a Republican politician, you better get on board with Israel, period. And before that, Republicans had been, uh, you know, National Review, William Buckley, they didn't, they didn't like Israel. Uh, they, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was the last American president to take on Israel in, in public in any way. So the Christian conservatives remade uh, the Republican Party on behalf of Israel in a way that if you didn't understand their theology, it, would be, it wouldn't make any sense. So I think we should return now to, to 67 and why it became such an important moment in the history of American Jews' relationship to Israel. And, and something that always stuck out to me, and I'm curious what you hear, is that it also happens to be the moment when many baby boomers come of sort of political age and political consciousness, and there's kind of a Weberian elective affinity there. So I was just curious if you could talk about that and, and how it may, might have shaped the boomers' relationship to the state going forward. Well. I never thought of it that way. One, one thing, a footnote to 67 is that it's when you see the hard left turning against Israel. So the, the student movement, the, the left wing of the student movement and uh, black power movements began to ally themselves with the Arab nations as part of the third world global revolution that they uh, associated themselves with. And, um, and it sort of cut them off from the larger discourse. Like they may have, you could say they were important with regard to Vietnam, but with regard to Israel, they, they just ceased to matter at all. Particularly since, uh, particularly with regard to, uh, the black publications, they were pretty nakedly anti-Semitic in their, in their discourse and imagery. Not all of them, but it was, it was very out front. Um, now putting, your question to me is, again, it's something I've never thought about before, and so I'm a little reluctant to answer it. I mean, I understand how I, I, I see it in my parents, you know? It's like, it's, it's, it was a radicalizing moment, especially followed by 73. I might be off, but sorry to interrupt, but I just want no, to say where a, it came from. Here's how I would explain it. If you looked at the statements of the American Jewish Committee and the ADL and the reform movement and in the conservative Jewish movement, if you looked at their annual statements and their, their rabbinical sermons, they would be almost indistinguishable from the statements of the Americans for Democratic Action or the uh, ACLU. To be a Jew in America before 67 was to be a liberal who said, we Jews are going are gonna to make America a better country. We're going to help make America a better country by being good Jews. So when Abraham Joshua Heschel marched next to Martin Luther King in Selma, that was like the most perfect expression. 
of the ideal of what it meant to be a Jew. But I had no theological substance. There's really no, there's really nothing to argue about whether or not Jesus was a, was born in a virgin birth or not, because it, 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 nobody really cares, you know, unless you're unless you're a very religious person. Um, there was no, there was no reason to be a Jew or to be a Reformed Jew or to be a Unitarian or to be a Protestant. It was just a way of being, and and therefore it 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 had a hard time explaining why it made sense to be a Jew, except that you were born a Jew. And in '67, what happened was, I mean, we could spend the whole we could spend days talking about it. But what happened was, was Americans, they felt like they, had, they got to replay the Holocaust. That, that here, uh, the, they were threatening to murder all these Jews. They, they had this, everyone has heard the phrase that Nasser said, we're going to throw the Jews into the sea, which he apparently didn't say. There's no evidence he ever said it. But they, they said similar things. Um, and, and, and Jews had been afraid in the 40s and, and timid, and they were ashamed of this. And now they weren't going to be afraid and timid because the position of Jews in America had also transformed itself in the 60s. And so they were going to be proud to help the Jews. But more importantly, the Israeli Jews, to the degree that you're thinking about the Holocaust, it couldn't be more different. Instead of walking into gas chambers and cowering before power, they kicked ass. They, you know, these, these, these great looking muscular poetry reciting graduate student Jews were also great soldiers and killers and, and, and lovers. And they were, they were Ubermen. They were Jewish Ubermenches. Right. And I just want to pause on that because I think this is really crucial to the transformation of American Jewish masculinity is that it gives American Jewish men in particular something to look up to. And so they're not sort of the weedy Woody Allen characters, even though he does become a sex symbol in the 1970s. But you, this does pre presage someone like Elliot Gould. So I just wanted to point on that sort of like masculinity thing, which I think is really crucial here. Well, there's a great fight uh, that precedes this between Philip Roth and Leon Uris, where Roth is calling Eurus's books ridiculous, and Eurus says, oh, if you want to read about these whiny Jews who go to their shrinks and can't write, that's fine, but that's not who we are, and you should, you know, it's anti, you're, you're, you're helping Himmler and, and et cetera by putting forth this notion. But yeah, there's a, I quote a rabbi in this book who, who is critical of his own congregation because you have these Israeli soldiers coming to talk, and they're all bedecked with their medals, and they're talking about how many Arabs they killed and when they were trapped, you know. And then, and then uh, he looks at his congregation and he says, it's as if these, Joe the accountant is killing, he's talking about killing Arabs and, and Harold the doctor and, and Bill the, the lawyer. They're talking about how we killed these Arabs. And, um, and it, gave, it gave Jews, particularly young Jews, particularly people who didn't know how to pass on their Jewishness to their children, like, I don't know how old you are, but like me, again, who was born in 1960, a, a, a positive identification with Jewishness that hadn't been there before. And, and it became tied to the sacralization of the Holocaust, which, as I said, is, is it, it, one has certainly one's own reason for caring about the Holocaust, but it, 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 it was ushered into the public discourse as another reason to support Israel. In fact, one of the main reasons. I quote Irving Kristol in the book saying, Israel and the Holocaust, that's everything of my Jewish identity. That's all there is. And that's an extreme statement, but it's not an unusual one. I mean, I think that defined Jewish education, basically. I, I went to a conservative day school for my entire primary and secondary education and part of my tertiary. Uh, and it really, Israel and the Holocaust were the two pulls. Uh, one quick question, though. You, you mentioned about, like, all these people talking about killing Arabs, which is, you know, from a perspective, kind of a disgusting thing to say. Was there any tension in that, that they were sort of valorizing Jewish masculinity through, you know, obviously attacking uh, a population and murdering people whose land they, you know, colonized? No one would agree with the idea that they colonized the land at that point, except for the far left. The American Jewish Committee actually, for a while, before 67, 
was on Israel's case about the way they treated the remaining Arabs in the country, about 150,000 of them. And, and the Israelis, they've been very consistent by saying, we don't care what you think. We don't care. Just write the checks and shut up. And or, or they'll say, well, we, do, we care deeply what you think, and then ignore what they said. So American Jewish Committee, and also it had no it had no support in the United States among Jews. So they eventually gave up on that. They, they kept that for quite a while. I was, again, surprised to learn that. But they eventually gave it up. There was no resistance really at all to this. There was some resistance in Israel. You can find uh, Amasaz writing about, do we really want to be a people who, who rules over another people? Is that Was that the idea? Right after 67. You can find other Israeli intellectuals talking about it. But in the United States, it's pretty rare. You get it with this group, Brera, uh, of rabbis and, and uh, non-clergy, begun in about 73. And they, they, they had a little, they had a little, they mattered for a little while, and then uh, were destroyed. They made some mistakes, and, and, but they were going to be destroyed anyway. The interesting thing about Brera, from today's perspective, is that one of its, uh, its, its I was recently corrected by one's member. In the book, I say founder. It wasn't a founder, but it was very important. He was the head of it, head of the board, named uh, Arnold Jacob Wolf. Arnold Jacob Wolf, very left-wing rabbi, criticizing Israel, saying we have to make peace with the Palestinians, uh, agitating on his behalf, defeated, disappeared, went back to be a rabbi in Hyde Park, uh, in a synagogue across the street from where Barack and Michelle Obama bought a condo, and that was That's Leo Strauss's synagogue. <laughs> yeah, so so Obama he really liked Arnold Jacob Wolf, and Obama became a liberal Zionist. He had to he had to hide it. Uh, on occasion, but he was very much of the same tradition that, of the people that I, you know, that I that I looked up to, and and that was one reason why uh, Jews didn't like him. <laughs> so, two questions that emerge from that: um, one, is this the moment when? Arabs begin to occupy a central place in the American Jewish imagination as an other and an enemy? Uh, that's question one. And then question two is how do the baby boom generation of 68ers, the people who are shutting down Columbia and Brooklyn College, my uncle was on the, the student council at Brooklyn College. He shut it down in 68. How are they interacting with 67 um, and what's going on in Israel? Okay, one doesn't want to generalize too much. I would say the Arab the role of the Arabs in the Jewish imagination, you can trace back to Exodus. And it was, it lay dormant, but everybody read that book and saw the movie. The movie was, was uh, it was one of the biggest grossing movies since Gone with the Wind. And, uh, and, and the book was, it was a fantastic amount of sales. So uh, it didn't matter for a while that people had that view, but, one, but once it did matter, that's the view they had of Arabs. And the Arabs had like, Virtually no voice at all in American political discourse. They still have very little, but they had really none. The only people that cared about the Arabs for a while, the State Department did, and the Defense Department did, but they eventually came around to liking Israel too. So the only people that liked the Arabs or cared about them were the oil companies. And that mattered in Congress, but not so much in the political discourse. Now, with regard to the 67, my friends, my 60s friends who were taking over buildings, Quite a few of them would say, they would talk about the draft, and they would say, the Jews, I'm thinking of moving to Israel because there I could at least fight for something I believed in. And that has to do, I think, with the idea that there was something non-masculine about wanting to avoid the draft, and you're showing that that's not what you're about. You're not a fraidy cat. You're not a wimp. You would fight. It's just this happens to be a really bad war. And uh, I heard that a lot. I actually, I literally heard my camp counselor say that out loud. Uh, when I was trying to go to sleep, he was telling it to somebody else at a Jewish camp I went to. Um, but you can see it written in a lot of places. But basically, what you're speaking to is this tension that begins in 67 and grows and grows and grows between Jewish liberal politics and Zionism, which started out as a project of the left uh, in 48. There's no question that the, if you're on the left, you supported the Zionists. The nation did, the New Republic did. The Soviet Union did. One of the only voices, uh, another mentor of mine, actually, 
I.F. Stone um, was enormously sympathetic to the Jews and traveled underground to Palestine with the refugees and valorized them and loved them. And he told me, he died in 1991, but he told me that he had been offered $50,000 in, in 1948 money if he would take the part out of his book, Underground to Palestine, where he called for a binational state and he wouldn't do it. Now, it wasn't a bribe, it was an advertising campaign. But um, back then, if you were on the left, you supported the, Isra the Israelis and you saw the Arabs as the reactionaries. This changed in, changed in 67. And so the far left, including what remained of the Communist Party um, and SDS and et cetera, they were all in the camp of the uh, Palestinians. Interestingly, Monthly Review and Ramparts, uh, they both ran articles that competed with one that, that had opposite arguments. They, they couldn't go either way in, in the same direction. Same way leftist magazines occasionally do today. Um, but, uh, but on the liberal side, people were very comfortable with Israel until, I would say, 1982, when uh, the invasion of Lebanon, and then things began to change. So let's move on now to 73 um, and, and how you see that shaping American Jews' relationship uh, to Israel, obviously. Well, between 67 and 73, all, literally all of the American Jewish organizations transformed themselves from social service organizations and educational institutions and uh, tikkun olam, which means, uh, you know, social justice type stuff, to mainly support for Israel. And they created a very effective network, um, and they saw themselves in a kind of state of permanent war, just like the Cold War. And they, in 73, when Israel was attacked, uh, they swung into action, and they were already in a much ability to be much more effective than they had ever been before. 67, it didn't turn out to be necessary. 67, Israel wanted the United States to give it permission to attack uh, the Egyptians, and the United States wouldn't give it, and, and there was really no, no real intervention on the part of American Jews. But in 73, there was enormous agitation on the part of American Jews, and the Defense Department and Henry Kissinger did not want to help Israel when it looked like Israel might be defeated, but Nixon overruled them, and that was, who knows exactly why Nixon did that, but it certainly was the right move from a political standpoint. How does Kissinger play into this? Because he's such an interesting character. He's transatlantic. He's Jewish. He speaks in a very prominent German accent, but he really never talks about his Judaism. What role does he play here, particularly when as a figure, but also about detente? Well... In my book, I argue that there's evidence that Kissinger encouraged the Egyptians to attack the Israelis in 73, because it was consistent with his larger goals having to do with detente, but also with having to do with getting the Russians out of the Middle East so that the United States could have a freer hand there. Um, and... Uh, and that the Egyptians were actually interested in making peace before that war. But when uh, they intimated this to Kissinger, he told them to forget it, and he told the Israelis to forget it, and he actually bribed the Israelis with weapon cells to not to, not to pursue it. Um, there's a lot of evidence for that, and it's not something that you see very often. Most people, Martin Indyk just wrote a 600-page book celebrating what a genius Henry Kissinger was in this period, and I think that's nonsense. Kissinger is, is very hard to explain in, in a lot of contexts, but in this one, because, yeah, he's Jewish. He's always saying terrible things about Jews and terrible things about the Israelis. He says, one thing he says about Jews, he goes, a people that's been hated for 2,000 years must be doing something wrong. Um, <laughs> he calls Israelis, he says, the only people more obnoxious, he says, Israelis are, if anything, more obnoxious than the Vietnamese were. And he goes, the American Jews are worse than the Israelis because they're always having to prove their manhood to the Israelis. He meets with a bunch of, uh, it's a very interesting meeting I spent some time on, where Kissinger meets with Irving Howe, Michael Walser, Norman Perhartz, and a few other intellectuals. I can't remember exactly now who else was there. But it runs the gamut. 
And he says, you, you Jews are, are really in trouble. And people are, when they, this oil thing, we're about to have a real crisis of anti-Semitism in this country. And you better get on Israel's case to behave. Or people are going to blame Israel for the fact that they can't heat their homes and can't have gas in their cars and stuff. And, and they're like, yes, sir, we got it. We're, we're going to go out there and, and do what you say. And he and Nixon were talking about how we're really going to stick it to the Jews. And then Nixon goes and gets impeached, so they, they don't get a chance to do that. Um, but he was incredibly frustrated with both Israel and American Jews. Israel, because here, here's what I can't say. Was Kissinger frustrated with them because he was frustrated with everyone who didn't do what he thought they should do? he thought he was smarter than everyone. And if you didn't go along with his ideas, then, you know, you were just, you were just impossible and there was no talking to you. Or uh, what, was there something about Jews that really pissed him off because he was avoiding his own Jewishness? One thing I don't do ever, one reason I never write biographies is I don't like to psychoanalyze people from a distance. So I don't know. But he, he did, his, his language... You know, he would sit there when Nixon would rail against Jews and, and how horrible they were and how we had to get them out of government. And, and he would say, well, Mr. President, there are Jews and there are Jews. Um, he never would defend them. Um, sometimes he would say, I am so ashamed to be a Jew right now, Mr. President. I'm so sorry about what you're seeing. So, uh, yeah, I think he saw his Jewishness as a real disadvantage, as a real problem to his, his plans to remake the world. And when other people brought up that Jewishness in a way that they were not at all uh, ashamed of or wary of, it really pissed him off. Like when he, he, when he would travel sometimes, particularly I think this happened with Germany, he, he'd look at the list of who was traveling with him and he would cut off the number of Jews. Just can't have too many Jews on this trip. He was very conscious of this in a way that for us today, I think it's, it's hard to hard to get. Tony Blinken would not do that. So what effect does 73 have on American Jewry writ large? Well, again, things looked bad and people were panicking. I guess what happened in 73 is that for a while, it looked like the Egyptians were going to make it to Tel Aviv. Uh and, and then the United States jumped in and Nixon sent all the planes that made it possible for Israel to win yet another smashing victory. And that cemented the American Jewish understanding of what the neoconservatives had been arguing. They were, weren't really, they were conservatives and they weren't neoconservatives yet. Lyndon Johnson used to say to American Jews, you know, you're against me in Vietnam. You're against me all over the world. How do you expect me to defend Israel? And Nixon took this up too. Um, Walt Rostow was famous for making this argument as well. And after 73, most American Jews bought it. That's what I'm talking about with Irving Howe and Michael Walser being in this room. Most American Jews said, well, if it's a choice between Israel surviving and my own liberal beliefs, my own liberal beliefs are going to have to just be set aside for the time being. Because if, if what's required is an American empire, keep Israel safe, then we need an American empire. Does anything else happen over the course of the 70s with the oil crisis, or is really the next big inflection point, 82 in Lebanon? Well, I think, again, Americans just were really worried about what Kissinger was talking about, that they would be blamed for the oil crisis, and that the country would turn against Israel. There's always been this fear that the country is about to turn on the Jews, and it, it never happens. But um, I think that was a big concern. Um, and they were always looking for signs that this was going to happen, and it didn't happen. So I think, yeah, nothing much happened until 82. So let's go to 82. What happens, and how does this really shape um, American Jewry and its relationship to Israel? Well, in 82, when Israel attacked Lebanon and then had a siege of Beirut, and then you also had Sabra and Shatila, this massacre that the Israelis didn't carry out, but they enabled um, this horrific massacre. The idea became clear to American Jews that Israel was not the country that they had thought it was, and that something had gone wrong. And, and 
Israel was doing things that didn't make any sense if you believed what Israel, if you believed in the myth that the Israelis and American Jews had created and bought into. So uh, for the first time, you had American Jews openly criticizing Israel. In the past, there had been criticism in private, but now it became open and heads of major Jewish organizations were criticizing Israel, Jewish scholars and writers. Um, Izzy Stone said, I, you know, they're now saying things that only Noam Chomsky and I ever said in the past. And it opened up um, space to talk about Israel in a much more realistic way. The idea, the, the other thing that happened, well, no, I guess I want to jump ahead now to the second, in, to the first Intifada in 88. When you combine 82 with 88, 88, what happened then was that the, um, well, in both cases, in 82, the siege of Beirut was very important because the journalists lived in Beirut to cover the Middle East. Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East, and everybody wanted to live there. And it's where all the journalistic headquarters were. And they saw that city being destroyed by Israeli bombing, and and they were shocked and horrified, and they reported this. And their, their editors back in the United States saying, no, that can't be true, that can't be true. But a lot of fighting over the content of the journalism, a lot of, a lot of censorship actually took place. Then in 88, when the Palestinians had their first intifada, which was with rocks and stones. I wouldn't call it nonviolent, but it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't violent in the way we usually think about violent um, rebellion. Um, and the Israelis responded, according to Yitzhak Rabin, by going out and breaking their bones. By the way, Henry Kissinger advised Rabin, he said, you must do what South Africa does and destroy this immediately. Anyway, so, so the Israelis did go out and break the bones of the teenagers that were throwing rocks uh, under orders from the defense minister, Rabin. And, and so you ended up with all these Palestinian kids in hospitals in traction and American correspondents interviewing them. Uh, and again, it was like cognitive dissonance with the Israel that was being sold, the Exodus version of Israel that was being sold. And at this moment, I remember this very well, uh, in 19, I believe it was 88, Nightline, the most important media television show, in some ways the most important media period, spent a week in Israel reporting on the conflict, and they had Palestinians and Israelis on at the same time. And one night they had a wall with four Palestinians and four Israelis talking to being questioned like it was a presidential debate. The reason they had the wall is because the Palestinians insisted that they were not there to represent the Palestinians because the PLO represented Palestinians. But anyway, for the very first time, you had Palestinian intellectuals and lawyers, uh, people in suits, without kafiyas, not looking like Yasser Arafat, making their case to the American public. And it was incredibly powerful um, that these were human beings, that they were not terrorists, that they were not smelly, ugly people the way Leon Uris had portrayed them. Um, and it was it was so profound when Nightline ran it that PBS ran Nightline's show the same week um, because it was, it was such an unusual thing. And ever since then, this moment between 82 and 88, after that, you could no longer write off the Palestinians as unimportant and subhuman and just a, a sort of footnote to the debate. Edward Said used to call it called the way they were treated, cigarette ash. It became, it became a conflict between two people who both had a claim to the same land and we needed to find some sort of solution, which of course has eluded us. But that, that from 67 um, until this period, the Palestinians didn't exist. They were, uh, they were terrorists or they were refugees, but there was no such thing as Palestinians. Golda Meir once said, who are the Palestinians? They do not exist. Um, but but between and you still hear that today on the right a little bit. Yeah, well, uh, the new campaign on the part of the Israelis is there is no occupation. That that's like a week old. But anyway, um, but but between eighty two and eighty eight is is the era that we're kind of living in today as far as the discourse goes. It's gone a lot further. Israel is a lot less popular than it was. The Palestinians have 
a movement. They've colonized the left and Middle East studies departments and the, um, you know, a, a bunch of academic organizations. But, um, but the point is, is that before this period, it was how do we keep Israel safe? And then after the period is how do we find the just solution? And because the Israelis are moving so far away from that notion today, they are becoming more and more unpopular with everyone but their core supporters. So, so how does the American Jewish, you know, organized American Jewry respond to that shift in 88, particularly in light of the Cold War? And then what, what happens with the Oslo Accords, which is clearly a continuation. But how would you characterize that? And also what, what, what happens in the 80s and 90s is you get the emergence of the millennial generation. You know, that's when I come of age. I'm born in 84 and I come of age. And so the two poles of my Jewish education were Israel um, and the Holocaust. But as that, as, as particularly as the Holocaust recedes into time, and as Israel is so obviously um, stands against particular liberal values, left wing values that Americans hold dear, um, that it raises new questions about generational exchange. So I, I'd like to hear you talk about what happens in the '90s, um, if possible. Okay. Well, with Oslo, I was actually on the lawn that day, uh, and I cried when Yitzhak Rabin made his incredibly moving speech. And, and everyone at that moment thought that, well, we've, we've overcome. We've settled this. It's going to work. And American Jews, American Jews organizations, they were split. On the right, they were very angry at Israel and angry at Rabin and trying to undermine him. Uh, the ambassador to the United States, who had been my professor when I went to Tel Aviv University, Itamar Rabinovich, he would sometimes have tomatoes thrown at him. And, um, and APAC didn't really want anything to do with it. Um, but American Jewish organizations said, well, it turns out at the same time we've been supporting Israel with all our hearts and all our minds, uh, young American Jews are marrying Goyim and leaving Jewry and we're losing American Jews and we really need to turn our attention to that. So now that, we've, now that Israel is going to be okay, we can figure out what to do about American Jewry. And this, of course, turned out to be a false dawn. And so there, there was a long period of tit for tat and who's responsible for this breakdown and that breakdown. And uh, the Israelis, uh, Israeli politicians and American funders came up with this idea of birthright, which is very interesting because birthright says we're losing American Jews. The way to save them is to save young American Jews is to bring them to Israel, show them Israel, and also have them be given tours by the Israeli military, and that will make them want to be Jewish when they go back to the United States. Uh, and, and they invested tens of billions of dollars in this. I did the Holocaust version where you went to a, a bunch of death camps and then you go immediately to Israel, so I'm intimately familiar with this. Okay, that doesn't sound like as much fun. Now, um, the real truth about birthright, and by the way, this worked for my partner's son, uh, is it's really, it's, real, it's, it's really referred to as Project Bookup. And, and the idea is that what they're really doing is sending young, corny Jewish kids on a trip where maybe they'll fall in love and marry each other, and they won't marry Goya. Um, and like I said, it worked uh, very happily for my partner's uh, son who's married to a woman he met on birthright. Um, but uh, my point is, is that they found a crisis in American Jewry, in young American Jewry, because they found that over 50% of American Jews were marrying outside of Judaism. And their only solution they could think of was to send them to Israel. So my, the only time I entered this book as, a, as an American Jew or as Eric Alterman, I like to think, is I say, well, what if some of that money had been spent in the United States thinking about how to revive diaspora Jewry to what it means to be an American Jew? Because this notion of Judaism equals support for Israel and sacralization of the Holocaust, it worked for me. I'm 63 years old. It's not working anymore. The conservative movement has lost 33% of its membership. Reform Jewry has lost 18%. This is all like in the past 15 or 20 years. 
and Amer- and young Jews are are leaving in droves. They're marching away, and and I argue that the Jewish organizations are offering them nothing but support for Israel. And by the way, watch out for the anti-Semites. And that's not a good reason to stay Jewish. And that's why they're not. That's one of the main reasons they're not. Staying. So I, I assume that through the 90s, it's still the same support for Israel. Does anything change after September 11th? Or well, One thing that happened in the 90s is that, is that conservative Jewish organizations sought to explicitly undermine the government of Israel while it was trying to make peace. And that's, that was new. And then when you had, when the Israelis started electing only conservative governments, then the American Jewish organizations were much happier because they could go back to the business of just defending Israel, which is what they were comfortable doing. And today, I'm sorry to jump ahead to today, but people like to do that. Up until now, they've been very comfortable defending Israel as a, as a rule. Some left-wing Jewish organizations have cropped up to fight with them. But basically, they've stuck to this notion that Israel is never at fault, and the Exodus version of Israel is still the version of Israel. And now, for the first time with this new Israeli government, they're facing up to the fact that even they can't make that argument anymore. So we're entering into a new phase where the uh, American Jewish organizations are really caught in the middle between an Israel they don't know how to defend and their jobs and their purpose and their their funders, et cetera. And I don't know how that's going to turn out. Um, so we're coming to the end here, but is there anything that you would want listeners to take away about American Jewry's relationship to Israel in the, dur- during the 2000s and 2010s related to the global war on terror and Bush and Obama? Or is it kind of like you gestured toward um, we're still in the quote-unquote Oslo period or the post-1988 period to be more specific, and there's various attempts at peace. They all fail. Organized American Jewry continues to support Israel. As a, as a general rule, while millennials effectively turn away from Judaism writ large. Well, I would say that there is a there is a Jewish left now uh, with regard to Israel that has gradations. So I spoke at the J Street conference um, in December. Yeah, and uh, and I said the same things that I say to you, and it was very well received. There, there's, there's a, there's a, is there's a, J and J Street, which used to call itself pro peace, pro Israel, now calls itself pro democracy, pro peace, pro Israel, and so they're taking a position, going back to sort of the old idea of, to be a Jew in America means to be a Jewish liberal, and we have to defend democracy, and we can't really have anything to say to Israel if we're not going to be democratic here ourselves, and our democracy is under threat. Then you have Jewish Voice for Peace, which is very much involved with BDS and anti-Zionist, and yet they're saying so as Jews, and they seem to have some numbers. And if you go, uh, you know, to campus demonstrations against Israel that are organized by Students for Justice in Palestine, a lot of those people are Jews. So there's a Jewish left, and and the Jewish organizations are explicitly doing battle with the Jewish left. They're panic. They're 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 raising money by panicking their parents and their grandparents, um, and uh, and and it's good for them. And um, for instance, the head of the ADL, Jonathan Greenblatt, recently attacked uh, these Jews as anti-Semitic. I mean, you. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's such. It's so obviously going to fail as a strategy. Just as a young Jew who's like very much on the left, it is so bizarre to see this because it's just going to fail. It's just going to turn people away from their avowed purpose, which again is probably just because it strengthens the institutions, and that's ultimately what matters in these things. But it's so, it's so obviously going to fail. It's going to fail on the one hand. It's going to continue to drive Jews away. Uh, it's it plays into what I'm describing as the inability of um, these organizations to uh, understand what's going on. On the one hand, on the other hand, these organizations have no political influence anywhere. BDS is a complete and total failure if you judge it on the basis of what has it done to help the Palestinians? What has it done to change Israeli behavior? Where, where does it have any political power at all? 4% of Americans, BDS has been around since 2004. 4% of Americans support it. 2% strongly. No 
no union, no local government, no major corporation, no university in America supports BDS. So that's the major expression of this, the left-wing anti-Israel movement. It, it's, it's, it's basically a fashion, an academic fashion statement. Um, so there's an awful lot of concern. If, if, you look at the, if you look at the debate over the future of support for Israel in the United States, it's always expressed in terms of, well, the Democratic Party is changing because young people are disaffected from Israel. But the Democratic Party is not changing. There are some Democrats who are saying things that Democrats never said in the past, uh, the squad, of whom there's approximately eight members. But when after, you know, Barack Obama, who the Israelis think is terrible and the conservative Jewish organization think is terrible, he signed a memo, memo, memo of understanding that gave Israel $38 billion over a period of 10 years. It's the law. Nothing can be done about it unless you wrote a new law. Um, so when Israel had a war in Gaza in 2021, they, they used a lot of the Iron Dome missiles. Iron Dome is the program that uh, shoot, a missile shoots at another missile developed by the United States and Israel. So, so there's a bill in Congress to, to give Israel an extra billion because that's, that's how much of the Iron Dome missiles. That was the cost of the missiles they used in that war. So what was the vote? There's 538 members of Congress. There are eight votes against. One abstention. AOC abstained. So that's the current state of, of political power in the United States. Yeah, it's, it's, it's effectively hopeless. I mean, Americans don't really care about other populations. This isn't a surprise. You could t point to a bunch of different things. So, I mean, your conclusion is effectively mine, that right now it, it, it's very – that's a very hopeless situation vis-a-vis -vis the actual fate of the Palestinian right. now, It's a bad thing. We agree. And it's a bad thing to end a book or to end a speech uh, to an audience and say, everything's hopeless. So when people say, I'm kind of bummed out, what can you say that won't bum me out? This is what I say. And I mean it, which is it's an opportunity to reimagine diaspora jewelry that we haven't had since – 67, and we need it. If you care about the future of American Jewry, which I do very much, um, and and to say, okay, Zionization and the Holocaust are not the selling points they were. What does it mean to be a Jew? How can we invest in the future of American Jewry such that it speaks to people in a non-vicarious way? So that's that's um, that's where I go. But uh, to say, what do we do about the Palestinians? I don't have an answer for that. Eric Alterman, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone really check out his book, We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel. It is excellent. And we hope to have you back to talk about the sad state of uh, international affairs. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.